Hello, bonjour, and tante. I'm Senator Paula Simons, and this is Alberta Unbound. July 1st will be Canada Day, of course. But for many in the Chinese-Canadian community, those celebrations will be bittersweet. That's because this July 1st also marks the 100th anniversary of the Chinese Exclusion Act, which effectively banned all Chinese immigration to Canada and imposed onerous conditions on Chinese people already living here. For decades, Chinese Canadians marked July 1st as Humiliation Day. And as this centenary approaches, many are re-examining the meaning of this history and what it means for our present. Teresa Wu-Pa is a former Alberta MLA and the chair of Action Chinese Canadians Together Foundation. She's also one of the organizers of the National Remembrance Ceremony to mark the Exclusion Act Centennial, which is scheduled to take place in the Senate Chamber on June 23rd. Gary Marr is the president and chief executive officer of the Canada West Foundation and a former progressive conservative cabinet minister. Nathan Ipp is the newly elected NDP MLA for Edmonton Southwest and a former Edmonton Public School trustee. And Linda Tsang is curator at the New Westminster Museum and was for 14 years the curator of cultural communities for the Royal Alberta Museum. She's also the past director of the Edmonton Chinatown Transformation Society. Linda, let's start with you. How did the Chinese Exclusion Act come to be? And what was its immediate impact on Western Canada's Chinese-Canadian community? The changes to the Head Tax Act, uh, to the Immigration Act of 1903, which had raised the head tax to $500, really hadn't done what it was supposed to. Which, which was, was to, to keep the Chinese out. Yes, yeah. I mean, it kept them out for two years. <laughs> and then everybody found money and managed to come anyways. Um, so those those restrictions hadn't been successful. So they argued that nothing else would do but a new immigration act, which would effectively stop Chinese immigration. Uh, they tabled that in April of, uh, of 1923. It was passed in June and enacted July 1st. Wow. And so what was the immediate impact of that? Um, the immediate impact uh, was fear because not only did it stop immigration, so it took a while for people to process that, but it was registration. Yeah. So anybody who had already paid the head tax was in the country legally, now had to report to the Chinese immigration office and re-register. So if you look at the back of the head tax certificates, there's a square stamp. That square stamp is the re-registration. And so people didn't, uh, didn't know, and I don't think the Canadian government knew at that time, what they were going to do with that re-registration. If they might just kick everybody out at some point. Yeah. So there was, there was a great deal of fear. Um, and then the other thing was that anybody who had been any Chinese person who had been born in Canada was now required to register as a resident alien. Even though they'd been born in this country, they didn't right. have birthright citizenship. Right. But now they had to register <laughs> as that. So there was, there was a gray area for a time for people who had been born in, who were Chinese and had been born in Canada. And now that gray area was stripped. So they were issued a resident alien card. Wow. Now, Gary, Mar, you come from one of Canada's oldest Chinese-Canadian families, one of Alberta's oldest Chinese-Canadian families, I should put it that way, I guess. 
your grandparents emigrated to Alberta before it was even a province. So what did the Exclusion Act mean for families such as yours? Well, it was was a very difficult time. My father and mother were both born in Edmonton in 1926 and 1927, but my grandparents had come to Canada, uh, I think, prior to 1903. And um, things were very, very difficult for, uh, for, you know, Chinese uh, people at that time. My, my one grandfather had a cafe in uh, Mayerthorpe and the other one in Lamont. But in the 1930s, things were pretty tough. And, you know, uh, the combination of the depression uh, and uh, racism that they endured, they, the, the, the grandfathers, the families, my grandfathers, my grandmothers and the families all went back to China and then, of course, the Second World War broke out. So my my mother and father were not able to come back uh, to uh, Canada until 1947. So they are oh, a wow. cohort that Linda talked about uh, of uh, Canadian-born Chinese that could not re-enter the country. And you know, it's 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 interesting uh, when we look at racism. Uh, for example, one of the examples that uh, Senator you and I have talked about is the famous five from Alberta that fought for, um, you know, the rights of women to vote. Well, they weren't talking about people like my mom. No, they sure weren't. <laughs> and so uh, even some of the people that we, um, you know, that we look up to as having done something important, like getting the right to vote, weren't talking about Chinese people. They were talking about white British um, citizens. And so uh, this is a, this is a context that we should look at all history through. And I, I know in your statement in the, um, in the Senate, uh, you talked about making sure that we learn from these examples so that they don't get repeated again and again. Now, right. Teresa, you yourself are an immigrant to Alberta and originally from Hong Kong. What made you decide that we needed a national ceremony of remembrance for the Exclusion Act? Why does this matter so much to you? Well, first of all, I would also like to say that uh, to share with you that um, uh, my families uh, are very much uh, uh, impacted by the by the Exclusion Act. Uh, in fact, um, uh, I have um, you know you, your podcast is giving me another opportunity to reflect on my my family experience. My father uh, did not get to meet my grandfather until we were finally immigrated to Canada on June the eleventh, nineteen seventy two, and he met his father at the age of forty one at the old Calgary Airport. And I, I also realized that um, uh, how I actually have been, grew, I, I grew up without my grandfather and, uh, and, and my grandparents were separated for 31 years before they were reunited in 1963. So I have family, generations of families impacted by, by, uh, by a, a policy uh, like this during peacetime Canada, that Canada actually enacted this racist law during peacetime on one particular group of pe- uh, citizens of ca- uh, Canada. So I want to say um, that, that, first of all, uh, um, Chinese Canadian is product of Canada. So our heritage is Canadian heritage and our history is Canadian heri- uh, is Canadian history. Absolutely. And it is important for Canada and Canadians uh, of all background uh, to take this as an opportunity to learn about ourselves. Uh, and uh, the impact of this type of policy uh, on our people today, on our nation today. Now, Nathan, your family story is different. You and your family emigrated from Taiwan to Canada in the 1980s, some 60 years after the Exclusion Act came into force and some 40 years after it was finally lifted. 
So why does this issue matter so much to you today? And you know, it it, it matters in a, in a number of different ways. And while you know my family story doesn't have a, a perhaps a d- direct connection to the Chinese Exclusion Act in terms of the lineage, I think the Chinese Exclusion Act impacted as as Teresa referenced, um, really the, the psyche of, of uh, Chinese Canadians, um, including uh, immigrants that, that came later, you know, su- successively uh, in a number of different ways. Um, you, you know, when my father came, he actually first came as a student in, in the late 60s and then went back to Taiwan and Hong Kong and, and, and uh, met my mother and then, and then came back in 1984. Um, my father, like many immigrants, were were focused on survival and making it in in Canada and and achieving economic stability. Um, and and so when it comes to the the Chinese Exclusion Act, I think it impacted the way that Chinese Canadians saw their place in Canada. Um, and and certainly in my own family's experience, um, my parents, who you know were very community minded. Um, certainly encouraged uh, my sister and I to to pursue our passions and pursue our dreams. Despite all of that, they um, there was always a bit of a disconnect in terms of seeing themselves as fully Canadian. Um, and there was always this tinge of, and it was more so how others had perhaps um, regarded them and, and their experience of of being in this country. That there is always an, a tinge of foreignness. For, for a lot of uh, Chinese Canadians. And I think that there is a, you know, perhaps an indirect, uh, but there is certainly a connection to the Chinese Exclusion Act. Now, Linda, I guess we should, because you're going to be our resident historian here. <laughs> when, when and why was the Exclusion Act finally lifted? And what do you think, I mean, as somebody who has studied Chinese culture on the prairies and in Alberta in particular, you know, often I think this is seen through the lens of the Vancouver experience, but what was the impact of the Exclusion Act Specifically in Alberta? Um, specifically in Alberta, Alberta's Chinese community is, is typical on the prairies, um, but it, it's, um, it's, it's very small, right? Even at its height, we're talking about less than 1% of the population. You know, the ironic, in, in the 1910s, the most Chinese place in Alberta was Lacombe. <laughs> Why? Lacombe, Lacombe, Alberta had 2.6% of its population as Chinese, and that was the highest, so they, was the they, highest they, proportion. They didn't have the most Chinese people. They just had the yeah. most Chinese people relative to, okay, that yes, makes more yeah, sense. Yeah, no, it wasn't. <laughs> yeah, but um, yeah, there was a very particular circumstance in Lacombe that made it a, a bit of a magnet. Um, but the, the, the Chinese in Alberta tended to be diffuse. Right. There were one or two in every small town. So the concentrations in urban centers was relatively small. And when you're that diffuse, then things like these big legislative events have less of an impact on your everyday life. Right. So, so in that sense, they were already isolated. They were just kind of isolated more. Yeah, I mean, running, over, running, running restaurants, running laundries. Yeah, like, yeah. yeah they, they were preoccupied with everyday life. And by and large, they were they were well accepted in in their small towns because they were they were providing essential services. 
So right. there, there wasn't there wasn't the same hysteria that there was about Vancouver's Chinatown being a, you know, yeah. de- a den of iniquity because because yes. because you, you knew Gary's grandfather who was running yes. the restaurant. Yes, and you saw him every day for your coffee, and he's the person who fed you, and he's the person that provided that that safe space. I mean, when when I did the exhibit Chop Suey on the Prairies, one of the things we investigated was the rural Chinese restaurant, and the rural Chinese restaurant really served a very specific social need. You know, it yeah. was the safe place where everybody could go, and everybody could socialize. Yeah. And that, that wasn't necessarily true in, in other places. Um, so in that sense, socially, the, the Exclusion Act probably had less of an impact. Um, it did cause a stagnation in the, in the Chinese community. And that's, that's overall, you know, when you cut off, when you cut off a group from its traditions, you know, things solidify and they, they, they gel. Oh, that's interesting. You know, and they, they, I don't want to say ossify, but the, you know, they, 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 they become, they become known facts, whether or not they are. Yeah. Um, we came, I mean, I'm a first generation immigrant. We came in the early seventies and we were among the first groups that benefited from the universal immigration act you know when, yeah. when canada changed to universal immigration in 67 so we were one of the first group we were in that first wave to come as independent immigrants and we we went to vancouver hit Ooh. chinatown and did not recognize a single thing <laughs> Yeah, because it was it was like a time capsule of yeah. yeah, it wasn't us and we were not from Hong Kong. We're we're from Taiwan. <laughs> we spoke Mandarin and they didn't understand us and we didn't understand them. So, you know, it it that's that's part of that isolation that happened. So socially there was this isolation and so there there was a certain tension when these new successive waves of immigrants came and came came against these established Chinese communities. Oh, that's really interesting. Yeah. That's really interesting. So, but I, I, we, we jumped over my first question, yes, which I guess, yeah. <laughs> um, so when the act was lifted, it was in the wake of the second world war. Yes. When Chinese Canadians who first were not allowed to fight, right. somebody woke up and realized that they could be very useful in the Pacific theater. So yes. there was, there was some tremendous acts of bravery and, and sacrifice by Chinese Canadians. Do you think that played a significant role in the decision or was it more, a more hard-nosed economic one to no, lift no, the Exclusion it, Act? The, um, the first lobbying was actually by um, World War II veterans groups and, and World War II veterans groups across, across the board. So um, one of the things that had been promised was, you know, veterans were to be given citizenship. And the Chinese, returning Chinese Canadian veterans were not originally going to be given citizenship. And so they lobbied and then all of the veterans groups said, well, no, you promised us this and you promised them this. So there was actually a special citizenship ceremony for Chinese Canadian veterans in, I think, uh, 1946. So that's before everybody else could get, they got automatic citizenship. And there were special events held. We, there's pictures in Vancouver of these special banquets 
for these people who receive their automatic citizenship. So that was the first thing. Then there was, you know, there was two years of lobbying, but there were a lot of political circumstances, you know. Um, Canada was a signatory to the UN, one of the founding groups of the UN. We were on the human rights (laughs) commissions. We led the human rights commissions, and yet here we were denying those human rights to our own citizens. So, So externally, there was a lot of political pressure to address our own inequities before we could then, you know, triumph, you know, signal yes, triumph yes, to yeah, the world. Exactly. Yeah, like, like lecture other people on their human yeah. rights. We had to tidy up some things. Yeah. Actually, so, Senator, I, I, wanted to, I wanted to jump in with a couple of names. This is while the Second World War was being fought. Uh, Roy Lee, who was the editor of a newspaper called the Chinatown News out of Vancouver, uh, had there had been a long debate about whether the Chinese should be involved uh, in the war, uh, in the war effort. And there was one group of Chinese who were saying, if we don't get the, if we don't get to vote, then we have no interest in fighting for a country that doesn't allow us to vote. But Roy was of the view, you serve first, and then you, uh, and then Canada will not be able to prevent us from voting. He, Roy Ma, and a guy named Douglas Jung, who was the first Chinese member of parliament, were both part of a group called Operation Oblivion. Mm -hmm. And these were Chinese uh, Canadians who were trained to go behind enemy lines in occupied China and provide essentially um, sort of a a resistance movement uh, and providing intelligence uh, from behind enemy lines about what the Japanese were doing. This was an incredibly dangerous yeah. uh, thing to do. But when guys like Roy Ma and, and, and Donald Jung came back, it made it a lot easier for, you know, what Linda was talking about, the, the uh, you know, the veterans who said, we've served, we now want the right to vote. And that in combination, and I agree with Linda that, you know, that in combination with, you know, being a, a signatory to the UN um, declarations made it very difficult for the Canadian government to resist um, providing full citizenship uh, to, uh, to uh, you know, to the Chinese, uh, like my mother and father when they returned in 1947. So, Teresa, when my Senate colleagues, Victor O oh and Yuan Pao Wu, first announced their plans for a national remembrance ceremony in the Senate chamber, I have to tell you, I received some emails from members of the Chinese community who are opposed to the whole idea who didn't want to mark the anniversary in any way because they still find the whole history of the act so shameful. So what do you say to people who think that we shouldn't be talking about this? Members of, uh, members of, of the Chinese Canadian community who just, you know, they said, let's celebrate the anniversary of the lifting, not the anniversary of the imposition. I mean, we're not celebrating it, but you know what I mean. Well, first of all, I respect uh, the diversity and the complexity of our community, and it's, uh, it exists in all communities uh, in, in our pluralistic uh, country. And uh, so um, uh, I think that there are many different ways we can learn uh, and, uh, and recognize the, um, the, uh, the centenary of the act. Uh, so one form can be to, uh, to recognize the, the uh, resilience and achievement of uh, Canadians of Chinese descent. Uh, and some of the uh, achieve, uh, uh, advances that have been gained. 
But uh, but I believe that in in our country, uh, if we believe that uh, history, uh, learning history is important, so that we would not re repeat history. And history offer a glimpse of the future. Look at you know, 50 years ago, we were still suffering from the exclusion. Today, there's different forms of exclusion we're experiencing. You know, when I first got elected as a scuba trustee in 1995, uh, one of the first letters I received was someone took time to write me and call me the yellow peril. And, uh, oh, and wow. at, um, uh, look at the term, uh, uh, yellow peril came back in 2020 at the onset of the COVID-19 pandemic. And, uh, and, and how many times have we heard that people told us, my children, to go home? Well, they are fifth generation. If you, we count all the generations that have contributed to this continent, and yet we can, people can just say, go home. And, um, uh, and, and, and for those people, uh, including the media, and uh, who continue to treat some of us as foreigners, not full citizens, they, they simply don't understand the harm that um, uh, this can instill on people, and especially our children and youth when their history is not included in our curriculum today. And um, uh, so I think that we have much work that remains to be done and we do it in our different ways. And uh, so I think that, um, uh, you know, if you look at the Chinese Canadian as one of the largest ethnic group in this country, uh, and, um, uh, you know, first arrival 1788, 1855, uh, up to two years ago, we had the second lowest voter turnout rate. And uh, so, um, uh, so we 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 should question ourselves. But now we also have an opportunity to learn the full history of our people and Canada, and understand that our community's integration have been impacted by racist acts such as the yeah. Chinese Exclusion Act, so that we can have a better and more mature and fair understanding of all of us. So we don't internalize that. Oh, we just not cut up for politics. It's not for us. We don't want to have what it takes to take those civic leadership roles. No, part of the, the answer lies in we need to really search and have a full understanding of our history and the impact of policy on different people in this country. So, Nathan, you were a school trustee during the worst of the anti-Chinese racism sparked by the COVID crisis. You've just won a seat as an MLA in the midst of the controversy over alleged interference by Beijing in Canadian elections. So 100 years after the Exclusion Act, how worried are you about this next generation racism? You know, I, I, I'm worried. And, and I think that's why it's so incredibly important that we don't forget things in our history, like the Chinese Exclusion Act, that it is in the curriculum, and that we, you know, ensure that we continue to have these conversations about our past so that we can, so it can better inform our future. Um, you know, I, I'm what what I think is particularly pernicious and worrisome about some of the the discourse and dialogue about uh, foreign interference is that it so can it can so easily feed into racist stereotypes and tropes of uh, Chinese Canadians and Asian people being untrustworthy, perpetually foreign, seen as an outsider, and those are those are you know sort of difficult things to really call people out on, you know, particularly when it permeates the, the, the public consciousness and discourse um, in, in very subtle and not so subtle ways. And so I think, um, you know, what 
the work that Teresa is doing is incredibly important because it needs to be out in the open to have dialogue such as this, um, you know, about Chinese the Chinese Exclusion Act, but also about uh, racism uh, and efforts to ensure that we continue to combat racism into the future. You know, Gary, you've had a long and successful career in Alberta politics. In fact, if I can say so without touching an owie spot, you were very nearly Canada's first Chinese-Canadian premier. In, in, in a different part of the multiverse, you were Canada's first Chinese-Canadian premier. Do you think the racism exemplified by the Exclusion Act, I don't know, if it dogged your time in politics or if you think, as Teresa says, you know, where there's tends to be lower than average involvement by the Chinese community in electoral politics. I guess I'm not asking a question. I'm asking you to meditate on these themes that I have presented to you. Look, when I, uh, when I first ran, there weren't very many people that I could look to, uh, but George Polem was one of them. So he was a yeah. city alderman here for many years and later in Calgary. Now, yeah. In Calgary. And, uh, but at any level of government, there were no Chinese cabinet ministers anywhere except for Bob Wong, who served as Minister of Energy, I think, from about 1986 to 1989 in, in Ontario. So, but now we see, uh, you know, there are many um, people who are participating in the electoral process. All across the country, um, there are, uh, the Chinese are finding their voices. I think Nathan Ip is a pretty damn good example of that. And so, um, are things the way that we want them to be? No. But are they better than they were 50 years ago, 30 years ago, 20 years ago? The answer is yes. Now, I want to leave the last words to Linda and Teresa because they are the most intimately involved in curating the story. Linda, through the work she's been doing in museums, and Teresa it, for organizing the, the, the remembrance ceremony. So how do you want the legacy of this 100th anniversary to be taken? What what lessons do you want Albertans and Canadians to take from this centenary? And, and Linda, I'll start with you. Sure. Um, I don't want it to be seen as a hammer. You know, we're not, we're not hammering away at people and sort of wagging our fingers at them. Um, I'm currently curating a piece for, for the New Westminster Museum, specifically time to, to commemorate this event. And what we have done is, is we have managed to piece together the story of an ordinary man. So out of a few scraps of paper that we found in the archives, I've managed to pretty much piece together the later life of this ordinary man who came to Canada in 1912, you know, went through the exclusion period and lived his entire adult pretty much his entire adult life in Canada and, and died in, in 1962. And there's, there's really nothing extraordinary about his life, but that's, that's part of it, is to say that we were ordinary people. We were ordinary Canadians, and there's still value in that. You don't have to be the first MP. You don't have to be, you know, the first lawyer or the first doctor. You could just be an ordinary person and yet make a con contribution. I mean, it, certainly in British Columbia, particularly, the Chinese built the infrastructure of the province, and yet all everybody ever says is, oh, Chinese railway workers. You know, that's four years in the history 
of Chinese Canadians in, you know, and, and, and that's all anybody wants to talk about. And they think if they talk about that, then they understand Chinese Canadian history. And it's only four years. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. and, and it's really something that's outside of, it's an extraordinary thing, but it's outside of everyday life. So we wanted to bring to life this ordinary person. And I think if we ground these stories in the fact that people made contributions, but they made contributions in small and large ways. So, Teresa, I, I'll, I'll leave the last, the very last words to you. What, you know, what do you want us to take away from this? Well, uh, if I may, uh, maybe two to three points. One is from the uh, Action Chinese Canadian Together Foundation perspective, that is, um, uh, have the privilege uh, to be so involved with the uh, organizing the uh, the commemoration of the Chinese Exclusion Act. Is that uh, um, I think this year uh, would provide all of us uh, Canadians an opportunity. Mm-hmm to deepen our understanding on our own country, our own history uh, and the peoples and our own environment, how we can make concrete changes, meaningful changes uh, in our everyday lives and especially in our systems. So, um, you know, ACCT uh, uh, right after the uh, June 23rd um, National Remembrance event, we'll be holding our uh, uh, Chinese Canadian Leaders Summit uh, to, provide a platform for Canadians of Chinese descent to have dialogue with Jewish uh, uh, and the Muslim and indigenous community uh, to look at our shared experience in this country and how we can work together for positive change. And we will also provide an opportunity for uh, Chinese Canadians to look at how we can uh, critically reflect on our experience and look at how we can actually uh, enhance our our participation and contribution uh, to this country that we all love. I want to say thank you very much to Teresa Wupaw and Gary Marr in Calgary and to Linda Tsang and Nathan Ip in Edmonton and to all of you for listening, liking, subscribing, and sharing. As of this month, we have had 25,000 downloads of Alberta Unbound, and that is all thanks to you, our loyal listeners, and our new subscribers. It's also thanks to Caitlin Cummings, our producer and editor, who so brilliantly took over the reins from our founding producer, Amit Shanalia. This marks Caitlin's 17th Alberta Unbound episode. I literally could not do this without her. I hope you've enjoyed this fourth season of Alberta Unbound as much as we have. Caitlin and I will return with season five this September. Till then, I'm Senator Paula Simons. Have a great summer. Thank you, merci, and hi hi.